Hey, hi. Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is The Other Thing I Do. My guest this week is Jeremy Workman, a documentary filmmaker whose features include Who is Henry Jaglum and The World Before Your Feet. His latest, Lily Topples the World, follows 20-year-old Lily Hevish on her quest to become the world's greatest domino toppler. It's a total charmer, celebrating both its subject skill and the sheer joy of watching people build elaborate formations of things and then knock them over. It's currently streaming on Discovery Plus in the United States, and in Canada it'll be available virtually next week, Tuesday, September 14th. Jeremy picked The Heiress, William Wyler's 1949 adaptation of Henry James' 1880 novel Washington Square, which stars Olivia de Havilland as Catherine Sloper, a genteel young New Yorker who falls for the charming Morris Townsend, played by Montgomery Clift, only to have her stern father, played by Ralph Richardson, refuse to give his blessing, convinced that Morris is only after Catherine's inheritance. Winner of four Academy Awards, including Best Actress for de Havilland and Best Black and White Costume Design for Edith Head, it's a simple, powerful study of desire and selfhood, and after 70 years, it still packs a hell of a punch. This is someone else's movie. So The Heiress is, is one of my favorite movies. Um, it's a movie I've seen a lot and it's a movie that even, you know, during during this pandemic, um, I found myself in maybe like April, May 2020, you know, as we all were just trying to figure out, OK, what's going on and, and finding comfort and in, in looking at at stuff and, and things that we've always enjoyed. And I even was watching The Heiress again, you know, at that point, um, I've seen it, you know, quite a bit. And uh, Wilder is certainly a big um one of my favorite directors, William Wyler, who, um, you know, we will definitely talk a little bit further about. But, you know, it's a little bit of a of a of a movie that's, you know, kind of forgotten a little bit and that's a little underseen. I think that, you know, uh, younger generations maybe don't know it or maybe just aren't really familiar with it. It's interesting. And I'm curious from you, Norm, like you were saying that, like, nobody's even really brought up a William Wyler movie on on for your podcast. So it's not surprising in a weird way. <laughs> I'm, I mean, I'm surprised that, I mean, stuff like Ben-Hur, the best years of our lives, things that have been around forever in that cultural consciousness way, or even Roman Holiday when it came out. Sure. Um, finally made it to Blu-ray for the first time. And I thought, okay, this will get somebody, this will tweak someone's attention. And it just never happened. It's not surprising in a way, you know, like um, I think probably for a lot of listeners, you're like, oh, William Wyler, you know, I think there's a little bit of a disconnect even, you know, amongst, um, you know, millennials and, and, and whatnot, younger, anyone under sort of any kind of film fans, film buffs who are under maybe 40 or so, you know, it's just like William Wyler sort of fits in this kind of weird zone. He's kind of fall through the cracks a little bit. You know, I think some people are like, you know, they know the name, but even his name is kind of, you know, it's like, it's not Billy Wilder. Right. Yeah. They get confused by, oh, William Wellman. Is that who we're talking about? No, right. it's William Wilder who um, has, you know, had this incredible, incredible studio, Hollywood studio career. Yeah. I mean, almost unrivaled um, and made, you know, just was a colossus in that world, um, a giant, you know, who was making um, one big movie after another. And, you know, you mentioned Ben-Hur and Roman Holiday. These are movies that a lot of people know. But, I mean, there's another, you know, half dozen, eight, ten that are all really great. Um, 
I think a lot of people know him from Best Years of Our Lives, which still gets a lot of attention, you know, as this kind of very important kind of post-war movie in America. It's up every Memorial Day, yeah. Yeah. And they're kind of familiar with that one too. It's um, it's one of the first, actually, Best Years of Our Lives is one of the first disability movies, you know, which is actually featuring oh, yeah. an actor who was disabled playing that role. Um, and of course, you know, as you mentioned, Ben-Hur, and, and then he even went as late as, you know, into the 60s and 70s, as uh, 60s, um, with Funny Girl. Um, and The Heiress is one of his films that are part of his, you know, women's pictures. Um, he was certainly a, a great studio hand and a lot of, of um, uh, there was a number of movies that he made that were considered great women's movies, you know, mm -hmm. as they would do back in the day um, in those studio eras, you know, women's pictures. Yeah, um, the melodramas as we would recognize them now, but the exactly. ones that were marketed specifically they generally had a literary bent. They were generally costume dramas. It was, it was a, it was a ghetto of sorts, right? But there was some great work being done in it. Oh, great work! And you know, we all sort of know Betty Davis. And again, you know, I don't know, like I don't have a lot of conversations with cinephiles today about Betty Davis. Um, but she was in a number of really incredible movies, and several of them were directed by William Wyler. Um, my favorite of the bunch is probably The Letter. Mm -hmm. which is this sort of great kind of exotic noir where she is, you know, maybe she murdered somebody, maybe she didn't, and uh, is really good and has all that kind of awesome noir moral ambiguity. Um, but, you know, he did Jezebel uh, with Betty Davis and um, um, a few others, Little Foxes, which is a great Lillian Hellman script. Um, and then there's some other awesome ones that that Wyler did, you know, that um, one of my favorite William Wyler movies is Dodsworth. Do you know that one? I do. Yeah. I think, right. think there's a criterion edition of that. I'm pretty yeah. sure that's how I saw it. it um, so that's a little early. Like you're talking about a director that really was working for probably 50 years in, in, in Hollywood. Um, Dodsworth is a movie from the thirties. Um, I think it's like 38 or so where it's about this marriage um, that's breaking apart. And, and this couple, one played by Walter Houston. Um, Dodsworth is the movie. And I know I'm kind of going off on a tangent. No, here, it's Dodsworth was the movie where I realized like, Oh my God, Walter Houston is, as important as John Houston, um, yeah. just a, an incredible, incredible actor. And uh, it really, you know, listeners should find that one too, Dodsworth. It's just, it's just great. It's this very subtle movie about this marriage that's kind of coming apart at the seams and takes place mostly on a cruise. Um, so the, the guy was just, you know, Wilder was just putting together this incredible body of work, you know, where these movies were, were having huge stars in them, you know, from Betty Davis to, um, you know, Audrey Hepburn, of course. And, um, you know, all these other ones where, you know, you know big movies of, with, with a lot of uh, major studio actresses who maybe are kind of forgotten a little bit today. You know, Greer Garson, um, you know, Mrs. Miniver. Yeah. You know, I don't know how many people are, are talking or thinking about Mrs. Miniver. Yeah, but, or the or the Olivier Wuthering Heights that he made, right? That was yeah just before the war. We haven't even mentioned that. That's like a movie that's still quite you know quite seen quite a bit. Um, 
And then he had this kind of interesting sort of late development in his career as well, where he did The Collector, which is, you know, an underrated. Oh, uh, yeah, the John Fowles, right? The yeah, adaptation. John Fowles, Terrence Stamp. Terrence Stamp. And, you know, it's better than you expect it to be. I haven't um, seen it in so long. I remember just thinking how how dated it felt just in terms of the costumes. But of course, if yeah. you make a movie in 1965, it's going to look like that. Yeah, yeah. I think I think I think there's a lot of, you know, with somebody like Wilder, you're like, oh, OK, this is going to these movies are going to be dusty. You know, they're <laughs> going to be dated and dusty. And then you watch them and they're really, really great. And they're really well made. Um, and they're just incredibly meticulous in how they're directed. Um, to the point where he he really has this just meticulous precision in how he's able to sort of uh, work with actors and where he places the camera. A lot of that stuff that we think about that studio look um, is all very much William Waller, you know, that deep focus. And, you know, of course, we all talk about, you know, Wells and Greg, Greg Tolan and Stanley Cortez. Well, Waller was doing that, too. You know, um, so it it is really those movies really just look incredible. Um, Another neat one that I love is Desperate Hours. Um, Right. I forgot he did that. that Yeah, that was his. So Desperate Hours, which is like this great Bogart movie. And and, and a lot of people know Desperate Hours because it was remade. It was kind of the first of the you know, the criminals that are keeping the family hostage movies. Right. But yep. it's just really, really um, well made. It's very uh, tense. Ha- how it's sort of put together is done is really well. It's one of Bogart's last great performances. I think he was I think he was even sick during it. Um, Possibly. Yeah. So another great movie. So the guy was just kind of just churning out these just awesome you know, mostly studio vehicles. A lot of them were, were Oscar vehicles, but they're just at a level that um, is is really a, a, a high, high level. And I've always been interested, um, just as a film fan, a film goer, in a lot of those kind of studio aces, you know, these sort of um, directors that, again, they're not, very hip these days you know fred zinnemann right yeah you know george stevens you know they're not they're not really the ones that we're all kind of you know chasing down to go see their films and um the the craftsmanship but with them are is just astounding and i think that's something that i've always uh, been attracted to and i think about in my own work is these sort of subtle effective ways that these directors are really able to kind of pull these movies off. Um, so finally getting to the heiress, which was this, um, I think is my favorite of the Wilder movies. Um, and it came out in 1948. And a lot of people sort of now know it or remember it from Olivia de Havilland's performance, which won the Oscar. Mm-hmm. And, uh, one of the great, great, uh, you know, actress performances really in Hollywood history, um, I would say, I, I think. And of course, Montgomery Clift, um, who plays this, you know, lover. And again, I, I'm sort of, you know, I, I want to give a little background because there might be, I, I can imagine there's some listeners who maybe don't know it. It's it's a Henry James story, um, Washington Square, which was also remade. Yeah. Um, and I, I never saw. 
It's, Have you seen it? Yeah, I saw it. Yeah, I, when it came out, I guess it was like 97 or 98. It was one yeah. of those Miramax. Exactly. Um, uh, buy kind of a prestige. Buy a, yeah, buy a property movies. and slap together a bunch of actors who are working on other stuff for you. Um, Agnieszka Holland directed it and she did a fine job. Like there's nothing, yeah. there's nothing wrong with it, but it's the kind of Miramax prestige movie that just smothers everything in production design. It's just, you can tell they spent money on it, but I don't know. It it also felt like with that one very specifically, and, and maybe the adaptation of the wings of the dove that they were trying to chase the age of innocence and yep. just why even try that? Yep. That is the, the gold standard. And Harvey just wanted one like it. And exactly. so he made a bunch of them and hoped that one would stick. Um, the one interesting thing about Washington Square, the film, is that Judith Ivey is in it in a small role. And then later she would play a different part in the heiress on Broadway with uh, Dan Stevens and Jessica Chastain. Yeah, like yeah. Which got ago. a lot of lot of buzz that that performance and which, it, you know, pales in comparison to the movie, you know. Um, I, yeah, I didn't see it. But so, yeah, it was not well received. The play. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think I think another thing just sort of working against the heiress in terms of of people who maybe haven't been drawn to it is just this idea that it's this sort of stage bound, you know, play that was put to put to but that was filmed, you know, mm-hmm. like, you know, like it's some sort of just kind of basic, you know, stage play that it was a, an Oscar vehicle that it was you know, and, and there's a million movies like that, especially in that era, you know, that were just movies that were kind of churned out um, to kind of for prestige and based on some famous play. But yet the movie itself is just so kind of well done and well made and, and rises above it to such a point that um, it, it really is is such a strong contender for, for one of the great sort of um, kind of quiet, subtle Hollywood studio movies, you know? And I, I think that's, what's really great about it is it mostly takes place in this one brownstone, this one townhouse um, about probably three quarters of the movie takes place in it. And yet it's how it's kind of um, directed how the character develops how it's written the acting from everybody is just so strong that it it does remind you like okay well if you know wells and kubrick kind of had a baby and they made it made a movie set in a in a townhouse and didn't want to do anything too showy and kept everything really restrained what would it look like well it might look like the heiress yeah, it struck me this time that it doesn't I mean it feels it feels very much like it was adapted from a play. It's it's not stage bound, but it's claustrophobic in the way that a stage performance would be and you're always sort of aware when the dialogue is performing the function of oh this happened but we don't show it because it's a we wouldn't have we wouldn't have had the place to put it in the first place in the original conception. But there are moments where it becomes so clear that Weiler is using the space as a trap. Like it's, Mm. it's deliberate visually that we are locked in with these people who are trapped with each other. And that helps us understand why Catherine sees an escape as a possibility and which escape she might gravitate to and, and how she would bond with 
like literally anyone. It's not, it, it happens to be Morris, but it could have been anyone who showed her any kindness mm-hmm. um, to get away from the stifling, suffocating life with her father. And all of that is conveyed visually, which amazed me this time through. I just rewatched it last night and I know, I mean, I'd seen it a few times before. Maybe this was my third all straight through viewing, but I don't know that I'd really connected it to construction before. Yeah, exactly. I think that's a great point that you go into this movie thinking that this is like a women's picture that is basically a a, a filmed play mm-hmm. and you come out realizing like, oh man, this guy, the arsenal that was at this guy's fingertips as a director is, is really stunning. Um, and it involves, you know, just to kind of give a little inventory of, of what he's doing, you know, the compositions are incredible. Um, yep. There's a number of time where he's really playfully and sort of sh- shrewdly using depth of field in really interesting ways. Um, he's using foreground and background really interestingly, like really just not showy, not where it's like a Coen Brothers movie, but where it's all very subtle. I think that's what really, you know, uh, what I like most about Weiler is he is has so so much at his fingertips has such such sort of weaponry as a director but he's very subtle with it um the blocking is great um there's a number of like great motifs that he's using um i think we mentioned the stairs the staircase mm-hmm. you know that becomes this kind of really key part of the physical space um, that, you know, a lot of people remember the last, the end shot of the heiress. And I won't, it's not a spoiler, but it involves this staircase, you know, and um, the way that like Hitchcock was able to sort of use uh, the physical space and to kind of use rooms and, and interiors and door frames and windows Weiler's doing that here and using the, the, this staircase, this kind of ornate staircase as a real kind of key motif um, and theme in a way um, and what it represented in the movie. Um, and then I, I think there's also, you know, like classic stuff like mirrors going on, just really incredible. Like you watch it, you're just like, how, how, how did he even get that shot? You know, where the camera is sort of slowly you know, quietly drifting off people's faces into a mirror and revealing some deeper aspects. So, yeah, I mean, I guess it, I I guess, you know, I I mentioned Hitchcock a second ago, I guess, I guess there is, you know, you think of like a movie like Dial M and how well that's conceived in a physical space. And I guess that is something also going on. You know, that's, that's a comparison in a way. Um, Yeah, or Rope, which is also, Similarly, you know, like uh, it's even the even the situation is similar. It's like the moneyed, uh, soul dead world of of New York or, or high society as we see it. Yeah, but setting this in the past also creates a different disconnection, right? Because the most powerful thing the heiress has going for it is the emotions that are flying around, right? Because it's about repression and 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 the. Um, the explosion of personalities that finally happens once Catherine 
stops pretending she's awkward. I mean, she, well, she's not pretending she is. And it's a, it's initially a marvelous, like it's a comic performance from de Havilland in the first reel. Yeah. Um, these little shrugs and winks and the way she sort of, she kind of flinches. Yeah, yeah. Or smiles to herself at one point when she's being clever and was then suddenly worried she's going to get caught. It's just these great little flashes. Um, and we see who she could be, but the era tricks us into thinking the whole thing will be that mannered. And, yeah. you know, the, the finery and the fact that I, I did notice that someone complained on the IMDb that they're not wearing cravats, which is what would have been the style at the time. And instead sure. they're wearing bow ties, which came 10 years later. And it's like, oh, it doesn't, no one ever specifies the year. It's fine. Yeah. Uh, people are so cranky, but the sense too, that we're watching a better world where people are supposed to be noble to one another. And then you just realize just how utterly manipulative every single character, including Catherine by the end is, is being, uh, and, and how brutal it is. That's, you know, it wasn't until maybe the age of innocence that Scorsese was doing stuff like that. It took that long, but Wyler exactly. was 40 years ahead of him. I, and I think age of innocence probably is the best kind of comp for this movie in a way. I think um, so. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, like we, I've been babbling on and on about, you know, Wilder as a director and what he's doing with, you know, doors and staircases, but really what, what this movie is so amazing and what makes the movie this classic is this um, Olivia de Havilland performance, which, you know, a lot of, you, you know, is considered one of the greatest kind of turns in the history of character in, in the history of movies. You know, she starts, you know, to put it really simply for anyone who hasn't seen it, she starts as this kind of meek, quiet young woman who's under the thumb of her father. And over the course of the movie, um, in both ways, uh, subtle, but as well as kind of striking and, and, you know, kind of obvious, she turns into this, into this different kind of character. And it's a little bit of a transition from a youth to an adult, to somebody of innocence, and to somebody who now sees the world in different, you know, shades of gray, who realizes that, you know, maybe from an idealist into somebody who's more cynical. And um, really that, that's what a lot of people associate the heiress with, is this incredible transition that this character makes over the course of the movie. Yeah. And it's, it's, I was going to say it's earned dramatically, but it's also so painful to watch. I mean, yeah. it is a tragedy in, in so many different ways that this character is left the way she's left that, and, and forced to leave others um, with a coldness. And they've actually, I mean, I, I was surprised to find out they added a couple of things to push it even further yeah, exactly. in the screenplay. It's, it's different from the original. Um, yeah. and it sort of works better in that way. You know, she goes from this sort of naive, shy girl into somebody who is now sort of, you know, really has her own kind of agency in terms of how she is as a person. Um, and that's that's actually something that kind of, that's what really resonated with me when um, in, in my own work as well as watching that and how that worked. Um, so, yeah, you know, it's it what happens just to catch anyone up who doesn't know it is that she is the heiress. Right. And her father, played by Ralph Richardson, who's incredible, yeah. um, also kind of, you know, underrated in that whole great 
British actor of all time conversation. Yeah. Um, I think it's because he slowed down towards the end and just people know, like a whole generation only knows him from Dragon Slayer. Right. Which is right. I mean, and yeah. Time that's, bandits. Oh, that's true. He's in time bandits. Uh, so those two things are real, like real kind of funny eccentric. Oh. I've always heard stories like he'd walk around with like a parrot on his shoulder, <laughs> or, you know, a lizard on a leash and that kind of stuff. Um, Good for so him. Any, Keep yeah, people guessing. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. So he, um, he is this wealthy father. He's a doctor. His daughter is, um, you know, is essentially a spinster. She doesn't, she's unlucky at love. Nobody's interested in her. She's supposed to be sort of an ugly duckling. Of course, it's Olivia de Havilland. So that doesn't quite gel, but um, who's this incredible beauty, of course. But she, um, Montgomery Cliff shows up and may, is very interested in becoming uh, her husband. And the father, Ralph Richardson, sort of, you know, blocks it because he believes he's only in it for her money. And then over the course of the movie, she sort of comes around to, to realizing, um, you know, what exactly is going on and how everybody is looking at her, both her father and Montgomery Cliff's character. So just a, a lot going on. It's definitely one of these kind of three people, you know, at play. I love um, the character uh, that Miriam Hopkins plays. She's kind of, I think she's her aunt. Yes. She's pushing this to be this great, you know, lo love story, this great, you know, romantic story. And um, yet we all sort of know that that's not what this is. But I love how that character is kind of like, almost like begging the movie just to be this like happy, this happy, lovely, you know, happy ending movie. And there is something to Clift's performance. And again, the character was softened for the film adaptation in the on stage. Apparently he's much more clearly a rogue, a fortune hunter, as people keep calling him. Um, Cliff, Cliff gives him a kind of weakness that I found really interesting this time through just the sense that he really, I think he believes what he's saying. I think he does want to give her a good life and be a good husband and be faithful. And I think he'd be all of those things. And I also think he would drain her in an hour. Yeah. He would just, he would just not be a responsible person. He thinks he is. And, and in that way, now there's an amazing commentary on white, on not white privilege, but just the whole white man, upper class thing yeah. where he's a pretender, he's poor, but he's aping the, the, um, the mannerisms and the clothes and the uh, the poise of someone he's educated and he's been cared for and he's sold his property. He says he's living off the remnants of his property at one point, which is a, a great throwaway line for now. It would be a guy who's trying to launch an artisanal pickle stand or something. Some like, trust fund kid. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's running out and he's cracking. And there's something that that Cliff brings to the role too, because he feels so contemporary compared to everyone else. And maybe it's the method or, or just his um, actor studio thing, whatever it was he was doing, but it instantly makes him feel different from everyone else. Even at the very first scene in that party where he just sort of pops up and they lock eyes, there's an energy to him that and maybe it's just that his hair is too big. Like his head <laughs> looks weird with the hat off. Yeah. Uh, and it's just the style that they went with. But he looks different. He looks he looks like he doesn't fit in. And it's a really subtle thing that I don't even know that. I mean, of course, it was conscious. It must have been conscious. Probably I mean, it was, yeah, it was Edith Head who was doing the costumes. And, mm -hmm. and Wilder was 
you know, famous for his precision. And he was another one of these directors that was doing take after take, you know, 50 takes and going back and adjusting the wardrobe and adjusting the hair and makeup over and over again. So, um, you know, with, with his films, I sort of always assume it's by design, you know, anything with that. And yeah, I mean, it, I I don't know if it's my favorite Cliff performance, but it, it kind of, I love it. And it's, it is really interesting because I think it is what, what you've sort of mentioned where it um, he believes his lies in a way like he, Mm. he, he thinks he doesn't think he's, you know, he's doing anything. yeah. Yeah. At all. And I think that's what really gives it, you know, this kind of, nuance um and this texture that apparently you know is not always there in in the play and Mm -hmm. and um um that it 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 is just these sort of shades of gray and and um you know like i mentioned this miriam hopkins character like she's sort of seeing the world very black and white like oh he's sweeping you off your feet and this is you know the dream the cinderella dream and yet the movie is constantly, constantly pushing you in directions where it's like, no, 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 there's, there's a way more depth here on every level. Um, yeah. and I think that's, what's so interesting about it. Yeah. Lavinia is an interesting character too, because um, it's very clear. I mean, she married a parson who has died and it's very clear that that was a quiet relationship, even though like there's that early joke um, that Catherine has about how oh, you've lied to me. You told me you used to only live on love and it feels like a dig almost. And I can understand why she would be so, you know, on board with a relationship with this, with this marriage. Uh, but yeah, there's that same, I guess she's what Catherine could grow up into if she's not careful. And maybe mm-hmm. that's the warning. Yeah. Ex- ex- an exactly. unfulfilled future or something. Yeah, exactly. That she's sort of seeing a, a different life, I don't know. It's, it's very, it's playing off this idea of, um, you know, the happy ending quite a bit, you know, like what the dream of, of the man coming in and sweeping you off your feet. And um, it's kind of constantly subverting that as it goes. So I think that's what, you know, you you, like, like you, you think it's going to be this romance, this movie, and it's sort of anything, but it's kind of, cruel and and difficult and you know very very ambiguous yeah i'm trying to think of other films that use the revelation of a parent's coldness as the dramatic climax really because it's not even about morris it's about catherine realizing her father has no time for her and no space for her in his heart and I can't think of another one. I mean, there are films where parents are disappointed by their children or parents or children are disillusioned by their parents, but this is just so it plays that moment so specifically and draws it out so excruciatingly over the last what 20 minutes of, sure. of Richardson's screen time, where he's just even the trip to Europe, where it's supposed to be his gift to her to distract her, and he just instantly loses all interest in in maintaining the charade as soon as. Uh, she acknowledges that she's been writing to Morris. Yeah. It's just so he's, he's great at being cold. And so that his, his, I don't even know if it's comeuppance. It's that perfectly Henry James Victorian thing where, well, if you're, you know, if you're cold inside, you're going to be cold outside and mm-hmm. that will give you a chill and you will die. The morality of the movie only comes out there. It's just like, well, here you go. This is your punishment. 
that you don't get to live to see your daughter be the person you want her to be. Yeah. And I I like that touch, um, you know, that he, he's a a widower and Mm -hmm. that he thinks about his wife and she's that sort of, she was this sort of perfect beauty and he's kind of held on to that and she'll, you know, his daughter will never sort of fulfill, you know, reach those heights for him and she could sing and the piano and all of that yeah piano is another thing that's really sort of done well in the movie just in terms of how it sort of is in this space and you see a lot in the shots in the background and where montgomery clift and olivia de Havilland first kind of connect as potential lovers it's it's over the piano and um so there's a number of uh, other little themes and motifs that are, are sort of playing along with it um the music's by Aaron Copeland, which mm-hmm. is also really interesting. You know, I know he did a few scores um, for Hollywood movies, but you, it's just, it's also this really rich score that plays into this whole stuff where she's kind of playing piano and, and that's how they kind of interact without words sometimes. Mm-hmm. And he won the Oscar for it, even though apparently he was really unhappy with it in the end. Oh, uh, I didn't know that. Is that a true? lot of it was reorchestrated by, um, it might have been, was it Korngold or? I can, That's surprising. Or, or the heirs. I'll look, I'll pull it up. It's I, here I think the score is great. So I'm surprised. I mean, yeah, it must have been reorchestrated. And it was apparently yeah. too dissonant and, uh, and cold to play to the audience's expectations. And so Weiler had it redone in order to make it more melodramatic. Yeah. And again, this goes with some of the themes I've mentioned about Weiler, you know, a real, a real perfectionist, you know, you've all heard about, you know, Kubrick throwing out the the score of 2001 and replacing it. I mean, Weiler was doing those kind of, kind of things all the time. Um, so it, it's not surprising, very kind of fastidious and, and in terms of, of making sure that everything was kind of perfect uh, for the movies in, in a big way. Yeah. And of course the, um, the other thing that amazes me about this is that apparently Clift hated his performance and walked out of the premiere. Like I've if, heard if that, is that to be Clift and De Havilland hated each other, that Clift hated it. Um, but, you know, he was a real method guy at this point and probably difficult to, to, to work with, I can imagine. Um, De Havilland was, you know, also at a really interesting place just in terms of her career. Um, of course, by the way, you know, we didn't even mention she died last year at yeah. uh, at 104. Well, good for her. Yeah, I mean, for a while she was she was always the oldest living Oscar, you know, winner. Yeah, she showed always, up at a Yeah, they would always sort well of into her. her out and she was always looking great. There was photos of her, you know, biking and and you know, all kinds of stuff like that going all the way until she was around 100 and she looked great. Um she was, of course, in a lot, like a lot of great women actresses of this time. She was always playing the, you know, um, the love interest. She was in, of course, Errol Flynn movies and I think made a big push to to start starring in her own films and this being like her great, great achievement. But there's some other great ones too. You know, she's great in uh, Dark Passage where she... Um, it's one of those kind of evil twin movies where she plays the both, both characters uh, snake pit, which is another, you know, dusty movie that nobody is watching these days, but she's really good in it. Um, so she also had this incredible body of work too, obviously, um, you know, uh, there's some big, huge ones gone with the wind that we all know, sure. but, you know, 
other great ones too. Yeah, I have found it. Um, not that I wasn't listening, but I looked up the the IMDb thing, and apparently the simplicity and transparency of Copeland's scoring was so disturbing to Weiler, he hated it so much that he immediately had it uh, redone. And uh, in a letter to the New York Times, Copeland denied having composed the music used for the opening credits. Wow. Claiming that his composition for the credits was deemed too challenging for audiences. So they ended up reusing the seventh, the 18th century piece. Uh, a version of it, which then became Can't Help Falling in Love, the Elvis yeah. hit, which I find absolutely wonderful. Exactly. Um, that, wow, that's interesting. Yeah, I hadn't heard that about that. Um, I had always I had always assumed this was one of, you know, one of Copeland's few kind of crowning achievements in Hollywood in a way. Um, I mean, he barely worked there. So, yeah, yeah you know, and, and he won the Oscar for it. So either way, it's a win for him. But yeah, it's, it's uh, one of those tortured processes that he wasn't apparently very content with by the end of it. Um, oh, and for De Havilland, while you were talking about her credits, I did want to bring up the one she made almost immediately after this, which is My Cousin Rachel. Um, which I haven't seen. Which, well, nobody remembers it. It's um, it's an adaptation of a Daphne du Maurier short story that was recently remade with Rachel Weisz and Sam Claflin, I think. And it's, the the remake is excellent. The original is is pretty good, but it's much more of the, um, proper British society picture, then it's the film that people think the heiress is, I mm. guess is how I would put it. So it was the film she made immediately, well, three years later, but it was her next feature. And that one's always had a kind of an odd space. Yeah. She's, she's had a, she had a great career, you know, looking back, she, she did really good movies. And then she kind of segued into that kind of sixties hagsploitation era. Yeah. Kind of in an Sweet Charlotte way. and all that. Yeah. And Lady in a Cage. Oh yeah. You Forgot know, about so, that one. Yeah. Um, that's a fun, weird one. Um, <laughs> and even some of those movies in the seventies that she was doing, you know, are, are mostly terrible, but still, you know, I, I saw the swarm not that long ago and I was like, Oh wow, this is terrible, but it's fun. Yeah. There was that, that window into time, right? There was that moment when disaster movies with just big sure. casts, it was just an excuse for everybody to hang out and cash a check. It's, it's the, I think it was the Siskel line about, I'd rather watch these people have lunch at craft services than watch sure. the movie that I'm watching. But sure, sure. yeah, I just love the idea that, you know, uh, Universal was doing it like when they, in the MCA years with shows like Columbo, where it's just an opportunity to, to trot out the old stars and give them a chance to show that they could still do stuff. Yeah. Yeah, no doubt. Um, yeah, we don't really do that anymore in, in movies today. You know, there's no. not really, there's not really venues for, for the older aging actors and actresses to kind of come back and show up and stuff as much. No. I mean, of course they do here and there, but you know, where, where are those opportunities these days? Yeah. Well, the only place you can find it now is something like the Brenna Poirot films, but even those people are A-listers, right? Yeah. Like it's Michelle Pfeiffer and Judy Dench. It's not right. people who worked with them at the time that they were hot and now have disappeared. Yeah, totally. And by hot, I do mean marketable, not, not hot in the other way. Cause that sounds weird. Um, yeah. It's, I keep trying to figure out if there's a frame for a, a remake of the heiress, but I don't know that it's even doable. Like who would you even cast now? Who is, who has that sort of energy? You know, Chastain and Dan Stevens played it on stage. And but... that feels just like really just kind of central casting in a way. You know, it feels uninspired, those two. 
Um, not that they're not good, but just that I think if you were going to do it today, you'd have to, you'd have to tweak it a little bit um, and not just have, you know, generic kind of choices. Um, yeah. Well, it's Chastain and Stevens are kind of who you would expect to see, right? Exactly. That's it. It's, it's not, it's, like, and also, like, also their body of work kind of, you know, brings you to that Points towards yeah. it, yeah. So I feel like that is is a little bit lazy casting, um, but yeah. I get it, sure. Weirdly Not that enough, Dan Stevens is, is, is at that level, but, you know, certainly Chastain. Yeah, and I, I, I was thinking of all people, I would, I wish someone had cast Ethan Hawke in this at the right time. Oh, uh, he'd, he'd, he'd have been great. Because you Just, can believe him with like the poor guy with integrity thing. He could sell that. Yeah, he could really convince himself that he's not a rogue and that he's really not just trying to get her money. Yeah, but who has Ethan Hawke energy now? Everything's so different. The, the, the landscape of cinema has changed. I would, yeah, my dream version of this would have been Ethan Hawke and Parker Posey. Oh, wow. But then that's set in the 90s and... Parker Posey is a little too self-confident, you know? She's yeah. Got, she's, a, you know, one of the things that de Havilland does so well is that she she feels like she doesn't have, she finds that self-confidence, you know, but that it's not, it's not built into her. Yeah. I could see Posey playing it as someone who talks too much instead of not enough. Mm. You know, like just a nervous talker who, who self-sabotages. Mm, sure. That's where I was going with that. I don't know. But of course, they're also now... 25 years too old for the roles. Sure. So my dream is over. Yeah, I think this, you know, I, I could imagine maybe this might pop up as a remake out there, but it can't, it, I, I can't, it, like, again, only if there's some actress who um, has a lot of kind of, uh, ha, has a lot of power to be able to, to green light projects. Mm. That's really the only way I could see this being remade. Um, and Chastain, it was on stage, but I, I could imagine that she probably tried to make a run at, at having this done as a film. I would hope know? so. I mean, she did Miss Julie around the same time, right? There yeah, would have been. So, so, but there is something to it where, okay, well, it is this kind of, you know, it's very, it feels very much of a, of a, of an older era. And I don't. I don't know if it would so well translate into today's world. Yeah, that was the other thing I was trying to think. Not if the audience would be interested, but if it could be updated in terms of chronology, if you could set it in the present day. And you probably could, but you'd have to break it to do it. It just, yeah. you know, they'd go outside. It wouldn't be the same. I, and I think that's probably, you know, Henry, there's probably a, a lot of cases for Henry James of that, you know, Um that especially the traditional kind of Henry James. I mean, Turn on the Screw has like a whole thing going on. Yeah. Keeps it always, you know, evergreen and fresh and, you know, workable and reworkable. But a lot of his other stuff is a little bit grounded in very kind of traditional classic approach to to this kind of look at the world, you know? Yeah. Well, they're interiorized. They're... yeah. They're frozen. And and again, that is sort of part of the, the whole point of the heiress is that the world of Washington Square is locked in wherever it would have been 23, 24 years ago when Catherine's mother died. And it's about Catherine herself breaking free. But the movie traps her differently, right? Like she's ultimately she's she becomes, I mean, I already said this, uh, she becomes the person her father wants her to be and it costs her everything. Yeah. 
but she gets the inheritance. So I guess, I don't know, maybe she'll form a charity or something. Like I, Her life is, it's it's such a weird triumph that the film ends the way it does. Oh, ultimately. yeah. It's, it, it's, it's not a positive ending. but it, Not at all. I mean, I don't even know if it is a triumph. I mean, it, it's it's a triumph of her taking ownership in her life. But I wouldn't, you know, it doesn't feel like it's this great sort of triumph of, uh, of yeah, I mean, of character. I, I guess it is. It, it's a triumph of character development. But it's it's very slow burn, and it it feels like it's not this. You know, I don't know. Is it something that audiences? I, I find it incredibly, incredibly powerful and emotional. The ending. Um, oh yeah. So I think Absolutely, that's yeah. where it it feels like you're you know as an audience member you're really kind of invested in her and you're what you're watching it for that character development that arc, that sort of narrative arc is her character development. You know, the narrative storytelling, okay, yeah, there's, you know, Montgomery Clift and he's coming and going and the father and he has an illness, but really the narrative arc for an audience is about watching this transition. Yeah. And I mean, that's, that's the thing, right? Are we rooting for her to be happy or are we rooting for her to be alone and safe? And which, like, which is preferable? Because if she's happy, it's going to be short term. Yeah, I, I don't even. Yeah, I think that's a good question. I don't, I don't know. I think I was rooting her for her. I'm always rooting for her, finding that strength, that kind of inner strength, and that's to me what the arc is for me. You yeah, know, it's less story driven, and it's more about this watching this transformation which that's really coming back to 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 my movie that's coming up that is the connection for me i was gonna ask yeah yeah so the um so i have this you know my new documentary lily topples the world is about a domino artist you know it's lily hevish she's a uh i started filming her when she was 19 and i filmed her for nearly three years Um, And we watch over the course of those three years, her sort of blossom into this um, from into this person who kind of becomes this very confident young woman. And that's really the connection um, and what always inspired me with the heiress to to that film. Um, So with Lily topples the world. It's a portrait of an artist. You know, it's this artist who's a domino toppler, who's really, really popular on YouTube, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, But what I was most interested in was how it was also a coming of age story. And it is a story where you're watching a character, much like the heiress, you're watching a character subtly develop an inner strength and watching this evolution where they're becoming sort of more and more confident, more and more pers- purposeful, more and more determined. It's almost like you're watching determination as a character, uh, as a character arc. And that's really what I, I see with the heiress. And that's what I took from that in terms of saying like, okay, can we do that in a documentary form? So really, for me, it was like a straight up one to one comparison. You know, obviously, it's not about 
you know, her and family and money or anything like that, but it's about watching, you know, you're watching this story of a character, but really, you know, over the course of the movie, they're subtly and slowly becoming, becoming themselves. And you're watching that evolution without even realizing that the evolution is happening. Yeah. So, and, yeah. It's, and your film is, you know, unquestionably triumphant. It's, you know, without it's a, a celebration. Yeah. But so, yeah, very, very different. You know, this is, you know, the heiress in some ways, as we said, it's it's not a tragedy, but it's just really, you know, it it's it's a difficult movie and it's not necessarily a happy movie um, by any stretch. But so you take that away and uh, you're like, or if you look at that, you're like, okay, well, I don't see any comparison between that and your documentary. But really what... There is. And it's this idea. Yeah. It's this idea of watching a young woman transition from a youth to adult in a way and what that, how the movie, and this kind of gets to some of the things I was saying a, a few minutes ago, and I probably wasn't saying it very good, how the movie is hanging the entire narrative on that so that the plot is almost secondary. You know, the plot in the era is just kind of secondary, right? Um, And the plot in some ways of my documentary is in some ways secondary. She does this, she does this event, she goes here, she she is invited to the Tonight Show, to the Today Show. It's just stuff, right? But really what you're doing is you're watching this kind of transition of a character who is becoming more you know, uh, this character development. And that's really what um, what I thought was so powerful and inspirational and sort of said like, hey, could could that work in, in a documentary? Um, yeah. with, without some of those big, you know, uh, road, without a big roadmap. You know, that's the other thing that I think is, is so neat about the heiress um, is it, it doesn't really, it doesn't really shriek it's it's moments of change. It's just kind of happening subtly and you're kind of with it the whole way. And um, that was something that I was trying to sort of accomplish with the documentary. Is yeah. that you're watching Lily and she is taking you on this journey without you even really sort of realizing that's what the journey is. You think the journey is going to be about her as a domino artist, she's going to become, you know, whatever, more famous or something. But really what it is, is this slow evolution of a character who's finding her inner strength. Yeah, which is my favorite kind of movie, mm. fictional or non-fictional, just to watch someone become themselves. Yeah. I think, you know, whatever else is going on, that's that's always going to be the hook for me, uh, whatever the backdrop is or the or the even the genre. If If you can show someone evolve and change and grow and chart that in a way that makes emotional sense to the viewer. That's yeah. There's nothing better. Yeah. You know, it, it just to come to documentaries for a second, you know, there's not a lot of documentaries that do uh, coming of age, you know, and that was something that really kind of excited me when I started working on this movie, I, I approached it when I started and it was, you know, there 
people were getting on board and there was, you know, some funding coming in. It was like, oh, okay, this is going to be this really interesting 21st century portrait of an artist. And then what was happening was I started filming Lily in college and I'm hanging out with her in her dorm room and I'm meeting all her friends and I'm getting to know her really as a human being and what that felt like as a, as a 19 year old girl, an awkward 19 year old girl you know, who was still kind of confused about what, is she really going to try to do this as a career? How is she going to, you know, and when I say this, meaning she is a professional domino artist and she decides that she's going to sort of make that leap. And um, it started to dawn on both of us, me and Lily, that it was very much a coming of age story. And I remember thinking like, okay, well, what does that mean? You know, it's like, what, ladybird? You know, like, what does that mean? And really what I kept on coming back to is like, no, what, what, what it's gonna be is you're gonna watch slowly this, this 90 minutes of this experience of kind of riding shotgun with this artist. But over the course of it, you're gonna watch this journey, this transition of her being, you know, this kind of quiet, shy young woman, I would, you know, shy girl into somebody who becomes this really kick-ass young woman who is just totally in control. And that was 100% the heiress. You know, if you think about the heiress, mm -hmm. the heiress is doing the exact same thing. Yeah. So what you're ultimately saying is that Catherine could have been saved if she'd had dominoes. That's really it. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I can imagine people's just, you know, eyebrows raising. They're just like, wait, what? This is, you just did a documentary on a, on a domino toppler and we're comparing it to Olivia de Havilland and the heiress. But yes, uh, just this idea that, um, you know, it, that you're watching somebody develop agency and, and how, when, when that happens, in a character, they also, you know, develop self-determination, self-respect, and a voice. And that's really what happens. That's what happens in the heiress. And that's 100% what's happening in this documentary. So that's why I found it so, so meaningful um, when I was making that documentary. Oh, I can absolutely see it. I'm, I'm shocked that it didn't occur to me, although it's been a while between screenings of the heirs. So maybe that's what it was, but I'm, sure. then I'm shocked. It didn't occur to me while I was rewatching the heirs just it, last night. It's not super obvious. It's just, <laughs> it, it, and I think that's good because, you know, I think ultimately these are subtle transformations and you're, you, you sometimes are, are, I think people watch Lily topples the world and they don't even sort of, they, they feel that, you know, they feel that there's this like real character arc it happening, but it's not really charted so clearly. It's sort of happening on the periphery. It's subtle and it's not, that doesn't call attention to itself. Nobody stops the movie and says like, hey, I used to be this and now I'm like this. Right. Um, you're just sort of watching this young woman over the course of 90 minutes have all these experiences. And over that, that time, you're seeing they're slowly changing slowly. And that's um, very much how I see the heiress as well. My thanks to Jeremy Workman, whose new documentary, Lily Topples the World, is currently streaming on Discovery Plus in the United States and coming to Canada next week, Tuesday, September 14th. Thanks also to friend of the show, Chris Smets. He knows what he did. 
You can find Jeremy on Twitter at Jeremy Workman, all one word, and you can find The Heiress on Blu-ray and DVD in a fine special edition from the Criterion Collection. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com, where I'm hosting a bunch of podcasts these days and figuring out what the new version of that Now streaming newsletter is going to look like. We're working on it, I promise. And you can find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at SomeoneElsesMovie.com. Our theme song is by The Last Year. If you like it or the show in general, please say so. Leave a review wherever you've been enjoying us. Every little bit helps. It truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network while you're there. Watch movies. Stay safe. Wear a mask if you go out. Get your shot if you can. I'll see you next time.